Welcome into the local angle. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, and we have to start with the Celtics because Jalen Brown is now the $300 million man. And what does this mean now long term for Jalen and the organization, right? So the reality is, until the Celtics win a championship, there's going to be this narrative hey, do Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum fit together? Do they make each other better? And you may say, Brian, this is absolutely crazy. They've been to the finals together. And they've been living in the Eastern Conference Finals since they both came into the NBA. But we do understand why these questions come up, right? They play the same position and they have similar skill sets. And you look at the team that just won the championship, the Nuggets. Yeah, they have the two-time MVP and the best player in the world right now who just so happens to play center in Nikola Jokic. But they also have a guard that fits perfectly with him and Jamal Murray in their two-man game, right? They perfectly complement each other. Tatum and Brown, they've had a ton of success, but their games don't exactly fit like a glove. Now, Tatum is an elite player in the league, and Jalen is an all-star level player. Things could be a lot worse, right? I'm not trying to make it sound like the Celtics have this big, huge problem. They've had a ton of success together, right? And it's just rare, though, to see in the NBA teams winning championships when their best two players have overlapping skill sets, right? So let's look at recent NBA champions and their best two players. So if we look at that Nuggets team I just mentioned, it's a center and a guard in Jokic and Murray. With the 2022 Warriors, Steph obviously was by far their best player, and you can pick their second best player. Now, it was probably Wiggins in the actual final series. He's a wing, not similar to Curry. Draymond probably overall that season, especially he was great defensively in the playoff run. He's a facilitator, a playmaker. He's not a guy that needs the ball to score. And even a guy like Klay Thompson, he's not really an on-ball guy, right? Where Klay Thompson, remember famously, he scored 60 points with 11 dribbles in a game. So Steph and Klay actually complement each other really well. Because when Klay is doing all this crazy off-the-ball stuff, Steph's doing his thing with the ball, right? So those guys fit together perfectly. Then you look at the 2021 Bucks. So Giannis is the best player, and he's a forward slash big and Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton, their second best player. Remember, Middleton that season was north of 41% on threes, and Holiday was at six assists per game. Giannis was at 20.8 points per game in the paint during that playoff run. That led the NBA. So basically, he operated inside. Those guys operated outside, so they complemented each other perfectly. You go to the 2020 Lakers, who won in the bubble. They had LeBron, the greatest point forward in the history of the league, And they had Anthony Davis, who was a big. At that point, Anthony Davis actually had the best shooting stretch of his entire career. He's never regained that. But nonetheless, he was also the best defender in the postseason that year. And LeBron was really the maestro of the offense, right? LeBron was the on-ball guy. Davis was the finisher as a roller. And that year, he shot the ball well in that run to the NBA championship as well. So you had a guy that could pick and pop. You had a guy that could roll to play a perfect two-man game with LeBron. And defensively, Davis was so great. So those guys fit together really well. Then you look at the 19 Raptors. Kawhi, yes, you had Siakam at forward on that team. But their second best player was Lowry. Lowry averaged 15 points per game during the playoff run, 6.6 assists. And you had guys like Lowry and Van Fleet on that team that could sort of space the floor, right? Lowry took six threes a game. Van Fleet hit 38.8% of his threes during that run, and even Gasol took 3.7 threes per game and shot 38.2%. So yeah, Siakam likes to operate in similar areas of the floor, but he wasn't up the pecking order at that particular point in time. Like right now, he's the best player on the Raptors, but at that point, he really wasn't even the second best player. And that was more of an ensembled cast around Kawhi than 
having a definitive number two guy permanently. So those guys really fit well around Kawhi. And also, they were all great defenders. Then you look at the 2018 Warriors, where you had Steph and Durant, the guard and the swing man, not overlapping skills whatsoever. This was basically having two of the best three players in the world at that time, along with LeBron. And it actually made Durant's life really easy because Curry and Durant, they were so good together because you always had to be occupied by Curry where Durant could score so easily. He's one of the best one-on-one scorers we've seen in the history of the sport. And now he's got Steph Curry on his team. It's almost like they broke the league. So those guys fit together really well. And the 2017 Warriors, we don't have to go through that because that's the same team. The 2016 Cavs, you had Kyrie and LeBron, the guard and the point forward. It was sort of reversed, right? Where LeBron, he still averaged 26.3 points per game in that run, but he also averaged 7.6 assists where that was almost like, hey, LeBron's running the offense. And this when Kyrie was at his best, where Kyrie could just operate in isolation. So Kyrie was the scorer, the finisher, and LeBron scored a ton of points, but he was facilitating. Those guys fit really well together, the wing and the guard. 2015 Warriors don't really have to go through that since we already mentioned it with the 2022 Warriors. The 14 Spurs, I would say at that point, Tony Parker was their best player. Postseason average 17.4 and 5 assists. And I know Kawhi won finals MVP because of his defense, but he was not Kawhi yet, right? And whether you say it's Kawhi, Duncan, whatever it is, it's a point guard and a big and a swing man. So those skill sets, they really complement each other well. So we'll come back to 12 and 13 for a second here because that's the similarity to the Celtics. But 11 Mavs, Dirk and Jason Terry, a big and a guard, not overlapping skill sets. And in fact, they had a really good two-man game together. The 2010 Lakers, I hate to bring this up because it's the Lakers, but you had a guard and a big in Kobe and Gasol. Same thing with 09, of course. And then in 08, of course, you had a big in KG and then you had a wing in Pierce and you had another shooter in Ray Allen. But your two best players, the wing... And the center, they don't overlap. So that's going through the last 15 years. The one team that has done it where the two guys have overlapping skill sets, that's in 12 and 13 with LeBron and Wade. That's the most similar example to the Celtics group. And it's really the only example in recent history. So we've seen this happen. Guys with overlapping skill sets win championships together. Just two of the last 15 title teams, right? So that means 13 of the last 15 have won with guys with complementary skills, a big and a guard or a wing and a guard, right? So how do the Celtics replicate what the Heat did? So now that Jalen is this $300 million man, it's on him. So the overlapping skill set thing has been okay and more than okay with both those guys on the court together, right? So if you look at the numbers last season, Tatum and Jalen on the court together, 120.2 offensive rating. And remember, the Kings led the NBA this past season with a 118.6 rating. So the Celtics are basically, with those two guys on the court, they're better than the league's best offense. So it works when they're on the court together. They also had a plus 5.7 net rating, which means they outscored teams by 5.7 points per 100 possessions. So that's really good, but it would have been second in the league behind who the Celtics at plus 6.7. So wait. How can that be true if Jalen and Tatum are your two best players? Well, getting back to this whole thing of complementing each other. So if you look at when Tatum played without Jalen, the Celtics had a 122 offensive rating, okay, and a plus 12 net rating. So think about that. The Celtics with Tatum and no Jalen were 6.3 points per 100 possessions better with Tatum and Jalen on the court together. So more than doubled. And that 5.3 points per 100 better than the league's best net rating. That's how good it was with Tatum and not Jalen Brown. So what about Jalen without Tatum? Okay, this is where it gets interesting and kind of concerning. A 113.7 offensive rating. That would have ranked 24th in the league. 
And so you go from the best offense in the league with just Tatum to the 23rd offense with just Jalen. Together, you're still the league's best offense. So they can play together. They can play with just Tatum on the court, but they can't play with just Jalen on the court to a high level of success. So the conclusion is Jalen, of course, needs to be better leading that second unit, if you will, or leading a different group of players. And here's the thing. I just don't think that Jalen is capable of doing that without a lot of help. We know the ball doesn't move the same with Jalen on the court compared to off the court. We've given you just the offensive rating and the impact numbers are actually bad with Jalen. They get better when he's off the court. And we know Jalen, he has his dribbling issues, right? But he's also not a good passer. We always look at the turnovers and stress on that, but he's really not a good passer. If you look at this past season, he had a 1.18 assist to turnover ratio of players listed as guards, because Jalen was last year, that have played at least 30 minutes per game. Only Kelly Oubre and DeAndre Hunter were worse in terms of their assist-to-turnover ratio. So Jalen's really bad when it comes to that. So the point of this is Jalen is never going to be the hub of the offense like Tatum can be. He's not a creator. So you're paying him $300 million to be a play finisher, essentially. So that type of player doesn't scream supermax. But the Celts, they didn't have a choice. What are they going to do? Trade him to another team and knock him a supermax? When he's a rental, it just doesn't make any sense. So you had no leverage. And secondarily, yes, Jalen is limited as a player, but he does a lot of things well. He averaged 26.6 points per game, which was ninth in the NBA. So I'm not trying to be very critical of Jalen. I'm just saying he has his weaknesses, but he's still a really, really good player. So how do you fix these non-Tatum minutes now that you're paying Jalen all this money? You would think the answer is he's just got to fill it up. The problem is I don't think you can be successful with Jalen by himself sort of leading the second unit. So my answer is I would have Tatum lead the bench mob. Tatum plays well with everyone. Jalen needs help. So give Tatum the rest early and keep Jalen on the court with your third and fourth best players in Derek White and Kristaps Porzingis. What Jalen needs is he needs a playmaker in Derek White. And if you look at Jalen and White on the court together last year, a plus 10.2 net rating and a 119.8 offensive rating, White can be sort of the table setter for that group. And then Porzingis can give Jalen a guy to run the pick and roll with, and he can space the floor 38%, as we said, or north of 38% from deep last season which opens up the lane for Jalen, and maybe he'll turn the ball over less because he'll have more space to operate with, right? So you keep your third and your fourth best player on the floor with Jalen to make life easier for him. And with Tatum, it doesn't really matter. If you look at Tatum, all these guys that he played with last year, Tatum and Al, 120.1 offensive rating, better than the league's best. Tatum and Brogdon together, 116.4 offensive rating, that would have been six, so still really good. Tatum and Hauser, 117.2, third best it would have been in the league. Tatum and Rob, 120.8, better than the league's best. Rob Williams, of course, I'm alluding to there. So he basically plays at an elite level with anyone, and he loves playing with Rob. So I would just rely on Tatum with the bench mob and keep the other top players like Derek White and like Kristaps Porzingis paired together with Jalen Brown to make his life easier. And I think Porzingis could be great for Jalen just in terms of that spacing and whatnot. And big picture, Tatum is the far superior player and more impactful as evident by all the stuff I just laid out. So it may seem like Jalen is here forever now that he just signed for $304 million, but essentially you now have this window where you have to win in the near future because they've now had two years where they're basically the main pieces. They haven't won a championship. If we get into this thing and we're five years into it and Jalen's getting paid all this money and the Celtics haven't won a championship yet, they're not trading Jason Tatum. They'll be trading Jalen Brown away. So I hope it all works out for these guys. And that's my suggestion for how it can work out this year. But now the pressure really is on Jalen to win a championship and prove these guys can fit together. 
All right, a lot more coming up on the local angle. You'll hear from the guys from the Philly Special, my buddy John Jastrzemski from New York, New York, and Jason Goff with the full go. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Ringers Philly special. And to those of you watching on FanDuel TV, I'm Shiel Kapadia today, joined by my friend, return guest, EJ Smith of the Inquirer. We have a fun show for you today. We're going to talk Eagles training camp, EJ and I, for the first segment. And then in the second segment, I'm going to fire off some Philly's thoughts to ace producer Cliff Augustine. Get those off my chest. They were boiling up during my vacation. I got to have some outlet uh, to have people hear what I have to say about the Phillies after that series against the Baltimore Orioles. But let's welcome in. I mean, you three-time return guest, EJ. You're, so you're going to start not returning my texts and phone calls pretty soon. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I must be doing something right. You know, I'm always honored when I get the, when I get the Shio Kapadia text. <laughs> Um, you know, I apologize because, uh, you know, pull, pull people behind the curtain. The last text you sent me, I, I had to turn you down on golf and I was really uh, broken <laughs> up about that. So I'm glad I can make it up a little bit by being here. Uh, yeah, like I said, thanks for having me. There you go. We'll make up for golf in like 10 months when it's uh, the, the <laughs> next time uh, we get a break here. But Eagles first training camp practice today. Nick Sirianni, Howie Roseman opening up uh, with the press conference before we get to whatever newsy items we have. I want to know, like, what training camp is this for EJ? What tricks have you learned? Like, what are you what are you wearing for, like, the heat? How are you staying hydrated? I mean, how did you feel? It's sort of like a, a back-to-school type feel, I remember always, the first day of training camp. Yeah, it is, it is really like a back-to-school vibe, you know? Like, I have my little <laughs> polo set out. Like, my wife my wife works night shifts, and she was like, send me your back-to-work like back to work outfit. I was like, no, like, we're not doing that. Um, you know, I'd say, so this is training camp number five for me. Um, wow. And, yeah, and I'm still the youngest on the beat. I, I'm pretty sure at the very least I'm still the youngest. Nice I'm, flex. Okay, yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, I have learned a couple of tricks of the trade, um, you know, not to get too much into the nonsense, all, like, right off the bat. But uh, but I've learned the tricks. It's mostly towel-related. You know, we, we used to call it the the Damo towel. Uh, yes. Paul Damowich, my, my former colleague, used to always bring, like, a, you know, like a little two-foot towel, like a hotel-type towel uh, to practice so he could wipe his sweat, make sure he didn't sweat through his shirt. That's a pro move. I'm going to break that out, this training camp. And then the other second towel-related tip, tip that I've learned over my time is you're taking a lot of showers during camp you got the, the shower before you go and you got the shower when you go home so you need two towels in the rotation i'm not usually a two towel guy but during camp you got to break out the second towel 
I mean, you just came in firing all, all cylinders. This guy's ready for uh, December. The Damo towel is absolutely the best training camp tip. And I don't know that I've ever done it, but every summer when I go to practices, I go, I should have done the Damo towel because he would often have it around his neck, which I don't know about you, but my neck is like the part of my body that gets the hottest and the sun's mm-hmm. just, you know, beaming down uh, on my neck. And so he would cover the neck. And then, yeah, you also have it to kind of wipe the face if the arms are getting sweaty, whatever. You have it to use there as well. So you're already, you know, wise beyond your years. That's something I need to start implementing uh, this summer as well. All right. Let's get to some of the newsy stuff. I mean, I don't think there's much news on this angle, but I have to just add, like the, the big question on the first day of training camp is like, who's there? Who's practicing? Who's not practicing? Is anyone holding out? Is anyone holding in? It seemed relatively uh, drama free for the Eagles, but fill us in on that aspect of it. Yeah, I wrote a, a weird story today, which was basically the story today was that there was not a huge story. Like, you know, mo- the, the injury list today, you know, the guys who weren't practicing, Hassan Reddick was the only like major player that wasn't at practice. No offense to Devin Allen, um, who was on the non-football injury list with a calf injury. Um, but like there, you know, when I first started on the beat, there was always something at the beginning of camp, whether it was Carson Wentz or, you know, uh, Fletcher Cox, Brandon Brooks, there were always guys who had lingering injuries, surgery recoveries that hadn't, you know, gone, hadn't, uh, you know, been finished by the time that training camp started this year, you know, all the guys who had surgery came back healthy. Uh, again, Hassan Reddick has groin stiffness. They, and you know, the word from the team is they expect him back, uh, early next week. You know, there's really not a lot of, you know, major injury concerns. There's no major contract concerns. You know, the Eagles got the Jalen Hurts extension done before all these other big extension quarterback extensions came in. So yeah, it's kind of an anticlimactic, uh, thing to start camp, you know, uh, Howie Roseman talked today and it's like, man, we don't have a ton of questions for Howie today. You know, usually it's like yeah. we're all shouting over each other. Today it was a little bit more chill because, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, pressing news. You know, obviously there's a lot of time uh, for things to come up. But for the start of camp, I think the Eagles are in a really good spot. I mean, I don't want you to go crazy with practice observations. You know, it's one day, uh, yeah. one practice. But uh, why don't we start on offense? Was there, you know, what what st- was there anything that stood out? Was there a play? Was there a player? Was there a depth chart thing? Uh, anything you saw that the listeners should know about? Yeah, so I'm calling these my initial observations because, like, that's all they really are, you know? And, like, yeah. I don't want to sit here and say every single time, well, you know, it's only been one practice. So it's really just, like, your first impressions of, of the, the team so far. Um, on offense, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that I, I noticed today was how much uh, DeAndre Swift was catching the ball out of the backfield. Now, I wouldn't say that those were – particularly productive plays with him. Um, you know, I think that there was a, a, it was generally a sloppy day for the offense. There wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, a standout plays or standout performances. Um, but, you know, DeAndre Swift out of the backfield as a, as a passing target was definitely one of the the headlines from today, in my opinion. Like, you know, there just seemed to, re- to be a real emphasis, you know, like the Eagles were rotating the backs, like, you know, Boston Scott, uh, Trey Sermon were getting reps with the ones, um, you know, uh, DeAndre Swift was in with the threes at one point. Uh, and Nick Sirianni said before practice, you know, those guys are just going to rotate. Don't read too much into it. And it kind of played out that way where it's like, wait a minute, like, why are these guys going in this in this order? But whenever DeAndre Swift was out there, he was seemingly the target of a lot of passes. Um, uh, and the other thing that I, I did notice um, – it's like it's funny the uh, the ebbs and flows of practice for a young player like Tyree Jackson's going through routes at the beginning of practice and like he kind of does this like uh, you know outbreaking route that's like 
he just like at the top of his route, he literally didn't do anything. Like he just like kind of just like rounded it off. And like Jason Michael, you know, got right up to him and yelled at him. Like, I need something at the top. This is like the first five minutes of practice. Yeah. Um, and then like he went on to have a really nice day. Like, you know, he had a leaping catch in the back of the end zone. You know, he had a couple of nice catches, uh, you know, outside of that too. Uh, he was just a guy who I wrote a lot in my notes here. Like, you know, I, I just remember writing his name down a couple of times. So yeah, Tyree Jackson, I think that he's the type of player that like has flashed in camp before. I think it's more about staying healthy and like, you know, getting more reps at tight end after, you know, playing quarterback in college. But yeah, those are the two offensive standouts. I know it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, not AJ Brown, Dallas Goddard, Devonte Smith, Jalen Hurts, but like those were two guys that stood out to me today. I mean, I think that's good. I, I always felt like, like, I'm not going to learn much about jail. You know, like what do you, Jalen Hurts could have the worst training camp we've ever seen. And does it really matter? <laughs> honestly, like you saw, yeah. you know, when you see what a guy can do uh, in the regular season, in the playoffs, AJ Brown too, like uh, literally all you want is for AJ Brown to be healthy. Now, last year it was different because it was like, all right, first time on the team. What's his chemistry like with Jalen Hurts? But those guys, there's almost like, I, I know you still write about them and, and include them in the observations. And maybe there's a, a wrinkle or something you notice that's different different than last mm-hmm. year, but you're, you know, there's only so much uh, you can say there uh, with the running backs. Uh, so DeAndre Swift, I was just looking, I think he's had over 350 receiving yards in each of his uh, seasons. He's averaged around 7.7 yards per reception, which is, you know, I would say slightly uh, above average, pretty good for a running back in terms of the whole rotation. I think it was the first question Sirianni got today, right? It was about the yeah. uh, running backs. Uh, Solak and I talked about it a little bit on the last episode, where do you come down on just basically who's going to lead the running backs in carries or touches when week 18 is over? Like, do you have a a strong opinion on that? I'm sure that's like a popular uh, topic of, of discussion on, on the sidelines or will be in the weeks ahead. Yeah. And it's really polarizing too. Like, you know, and I, I get it. It's like, you know, we don't really know yet, but honestly, I think, the, the fact that the team really started to turn to Kenny Gainwell when the games got more and more important, you know, by the time that the Super Bowl rolled around, he was such a big part of the, uh, the running game and the offense in general. And like, I think that he, when he got drafted, I think he was cast as like, you know, the Naheem Hines type player, you know, the gadget guy who could be out in the slot and really affect the passing game. And he's kind of evolved into something completely different than that. You know, he's actually really, I've always thought that he's really good in short yarded situations around the goal line. He seems to have good vision. Um, Honestly, if I had to pick like which running back you say carries, like leads leads the team. Yeah, let's say carries. Yeah. I would say Kenny Gainwell. You know, I, I think that there's a real chance for Rashad Penny to like make an impact. But um, and I heard that you guys say this on the last pod. Like, I think he's going to be like a limited touches until they really need him to kind of turn it up uh, type of guy. And like, I think that DeAndre Swift can have a role. I actually think that he might be that Naheem Hines role. You know, that guy who can affect the passing game and, you know, kind of be deployed in different places. You know, I, I don't I don't see him as like you know, a, a work, a workhorse type back. I mean, Detroit didn't use him that way. Um, and I, I think that he's kind of a little bit more of the gadget guy. So it's weird. Cause they've got such a, a strange mix of uh, running backs. You know, they have a bunch of guys who don't really fit that prototypical, you know, featured back uh, archetype, but yeah, I would probably put Kenny Gamewell in as a leader now. Now we'll see, like, I think camp's going to give us a lot of information on, you know, who gets the the key reps and you know who looks the best but yeah right now if you ask me through one day I would still say Kenny Gamewell even though like like I mentioned earlier you saw a lot of DeAndre Swift kind of uh as the um as like the main pass target uh when he was in there 
All right, I have to make sure Solak doesn't listen to this episode or he's going to be chirping that C. EJ Boots on the Ground is backing up his opinion of Kenny Gainwell. You are absolutely right. We, we mentioned it on the last episode, just about the style of, of Gainwell. I mean, he's been one of the most efficient runners in the NFL over the last two years on a small sample, and he hasn't really been a big play threat. I think I said one carry of over 20 plus yards in like 121 attempts or, uh, or, or something like that. So, um, it could play out that way. I, I'm still hanging on DeAndre Swift has done it uh, a little bit more, but we'll see uh, how that plays out. And I think it'll be close regardless. You know, I don't think one yeah, guy's going to run away with it or anything like that. Thanks to EJ Smith of the Inquirer for joining us on the local angle. Remember, you can listen to the Philly special on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What episode are we? This is, this is episode 270 of the Full Go Podcast. Is that what we're working with on this fine Tuesday evening? Welcome into episode 270 of the Full Go Podcast right here. I'm Jason Goff. And of course, this thing is brought to you by The Ringer. And Spotify is the gang. Shout out to FanDuel TV, the local angle. Mwah, we love you. Every single Friday, you can check us out here on the local angle. And of course, every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday, you can check out the Full Go wherever you get your pods, but most importantly, right here on Spotify. So as we're sitting here, Kyle Williams, the the exceptional one, of course, the my main man, Tony Gill, and the Chief Vibes Officer, Chris Sutton. We have just taken in Cub Sox Game One of the Crosstown Series. Right, uh, all the excitement going about the city and every year. It's 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 as if you got two Beyonce concerts in one one stadium at Guaranteed Rate Field, huh? Or not, or not. It, it was as if you had 17,000 people in 87 degree heat watching the White Sox hit their ass kicked by Dansby Swanson. That's all, that's all that just happened. I sat here and was looking forward to talking to y'all, the people who aren't privy to the whole Chicago thing. Shout out to the Philly peeps. Shout out to the Boston peeps. Shout out to the New York, New York peeps with Johnny Stremski and the gang. I was getting ready to, you know, ingratiate everybody, Tony and Kyle. I was getting there ready to, to make sure everybody understood what the Crosstown Classic felt like because for years Crosstown Classic has been you know kind of my like lightweight guilty pleasure you know my my jam like I'm not one of these Sox fans who hates Cubs fans right or hates the Cubs that's not really my game like y'all can have all that y'all can have a bickering and and arguing between two moribund franchises who have won what two titles in the last 80 some odd 100 some odd years like I'm not about that game right like I'm not about to play who has played the better nail to everybody else's sledgehammer in baseball. I'm not going to play that game with y'all. It's 
especially not locally. So every single year for the last, I don't know how many years I've tried to go to this series with my uncle, who is also a Sox fan and a member of Chicago Police Department, Chicago's finest for 20 some odd years. He went out there with his old partner tonight. And I was like, hey, man, take care. Have a good time. Enjoy the game. Last time we went out was the Eloy Jimenez game. It was the last time Eloy Jimenez hit a home run where I was like, damn it. This is why you're here. All the other home runs and all the other hot streaks and all the other weeks where he's been hot and then gets a groin injury and is out for a week or two weeks or runs into a fence and is out for a month. Like the the ups and downs. Let me tell you, Eloy hitting that home run a few years back. Was it 2019? Boy, I I still a single tear comes down my eye when I think of that because that wasn't what happened tonight at Guarantee Ray Field. And I'll say this, man, Lance Lynn, if he is the older version of what Michael Kopech is going through, you can watch it right there for your face. You get, you get back-to-back home runs for Danzy Swanson and Christopher Morrell. Next thing you know, Danzy Swanson comes up, takes another one out the yard. And okay, you're throwing the throwing error by Tim Anderson, just, you know, as the cherry on top, right? Like everything that the White Sox have kind of been all year long, they were tonight. And that's as as simple as that. And as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline, which when this thing comes out, we'll be talking about is Michael Kopech the the number one because Lance Lynn has been moved on. You know, is, is Kyle Hendricks still a part of the Cubs starting staff pitched a phenomenal game? Although bottom of the seventh, we know what happened, right? Yoan Mankata goes deep. It's (laughs) bases are loaded. It's a seven to one ball game. You figure this home run gets you right back into the swing of things. The, the, the Sox bats have been um, a little, a little bit more loud coming off the All Star break, but no, Seiya Suzuki robs the home run right at the fence. The game stays seven one. The Sox tack on a couple more runs. Like this, it, it, it's a monstrosity of a season. And Michael Kopech has just done what Lance Lynn has done this year, which is when he doesn't have the velocity on that fastball, when you ain't throwing that thing 99, 98, like we're used to seeing, when that thing is around 96, 95, and as straight as a string in the zone, you're going to get lifted. And that's what happened. He got lifted. the, The launch angle got the best of him. His stuff isn't as overpowering in some starts as it is in others his consistency has has been an issue and also his pitch efficiency has been an issue i mean the long at bats where you're getting you know that second time through the order it's as if it's the it's the third time because of how many pitches you've seen from top to bottom and the cubs bats have been hot post all-star break i mean you know cody bellinger has been on smash <laughs> ian happ has found his stroke again uh you know of course Danzy swanson has come back and this is another uh little um little suggestion in the suggestion box for david ross hey uh mike talkman no longer needs to bat lead off that, that that whole thing can you know dansby is back now you could go ahead and throw him back up there at the top of the lineup wherever you want to slot him in right if you want to you know put a jump start in that thing and put him in, in the number one hole put nico horner who all he does is make plays made more plays in game one of the Sox. Uh, Cubs Cross Sound Classic. It's the first time since 1901, by the way, that the Cubs have had four plus home runs and five stolen bases in a game. That happened against the White Sox. The first time in 122 years that the Cubs did something, and it just happened to have to in the first game of the White Sox Cubs series. I'll say this: Yasmani Grandal should be embarrassed. Should be embarrassed. 
They ran early and often on him and weren't even waiting for first move. Wait, weren't waiting to be looked back. It wasn't a rhythm thing. Like we got to start treating this thing like we treat every other free agent signing that really doesn't fit the bill. And whether it be a linebacker or a point guard or a catcher behind the plate, and hey, love him. Seems like a nice enough guy. Hasn't really been valued the way that money says he should be valued. He hasn't been productive. And especially behind the plate, you thought this guy is going to be the framer of pitches, the controller of a staff, and the guy who is going to execute your defense against the running game. Well, didn't happen tonight. Nico Horner had two stolen bases tonight. He did everything he wanted to do. So, hey, man, if you're a Cubs fan, you're sitting pretty right now. You're hoping that they can, you know, beat the hell out of these sorry-ass teams that they've been playing post-All-Star break, like the Cardinals, like the Nationals, like the White Sox, and maybe just maybe convince Jed Hoyer to not move Kyle Hendricks, to not move Marcus Stroman. Cody Bellinger has a 1,000-plus OPS. He's, he's doing something crazy like 144 in the weighted runs created plus category in the month of July. Like he's been outstanding and he's playing a gold glove caliber center field. So if they can string some more wins together and make Jed Hoyer think or believe that they are in this wild card hunt, what are they, three and a half games, four games out as we sit here on a Tuesday night? Uh, I'm not mad at it. Because I don't want to see those dudes leave four Cubs fans. I don't want to see Cody Bellinger go to the Twins and, you know, he, then he kicks the shit out of the rest of the AL Central for the rest of the season and then maybe just maybe enjoys his time. Next thing you know, he's a Minnesota Twin the same way uh, that Carlos Correa became one. Whereas, like, all right, we'll see. Well, a little bit of a flyer here. Next thing you know, they're extending them. Like, you got to be very careful. Guys go to different atmospheres and get a taste of some winning or important baseball and fall in love for, you know, a two-month rental. Unless you got the wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of nod, understood, handshake, gentleman's agreement that, that you're coming back here. But Cody Bellinger is the kind of guy that you're trying to add if you're the Cubs and Cubs fans. Marcus Stroman is the kind of guy that you're trying to add in an offseason if you're the Cubs. So the fact that they played so well, pitched so well, and hit so well, now that they, you know, have been put themselves in the position where they are trade bait, it's it's um it's quite the conundrum. But you don't have to worry about that when the Sox are in town, boy. I tell you, you know, dinner and a movie. <laughs> That's all. And man, you you might not even have to go out to dinner. You feel me? Just hey, just just throw some on Netflix. Really. Real quick, socks come over and chill out. They got the furry balls on the on the on the back of the socks. You know what I'm talking about back in the day, fellas. You know, you know what it was when you saw the little the little the little the little cotton ball on the back of the sock. You know what time it was when they pull up in that bonnet. Yeah, straight to the action. That's what the socks are from here on out, y'all. They are the straight to the action boys. Okay, you want to air right there for you, served up, hot and ready, like a five dollar holler. You want you want to run into an out. At third base, when you're down by one run, uh, I can't wait to. I'm a Chicago White Sox. This is what I do. You want to be wild in the zone as if you're still throwing 100 miles an hour and 99 miles an hour? Here it is, served up on a platter. How do you want it? Huh? Just a little bubble gum afterwards. That's all I ask for. That's what the White Sox have been. They are 20 games under 500, y'all. 20. 20. This is a team that was supposed to contend not only for the AL Central title, but was going to show us that they were not what they were last year. Blame it on the old man, right? 
Blame it on Tony LaRusso. It was his fault. He's falling asleep in the dugout, got sick at the end, and we didn't really have our mojo. Bring in somebody from Kansas City who was a part of the ass whoopings that we took last year and said, hey, those ass whoopings will no longer be happening because I'm at the helm. And guess what happened? Guess what happened? They looked him right in the face, said, hey, for your first managerial job, we are going to be the least the least productive team in the first half in terms of just entirety of baseball, right? Whether it be hitting, base running, fielding, <laughs> uh, staying healthy. Like, what did the Sox do well pre-All-Star break that made you think post-All-Star break this shit was going to get back on track? Nothing for me. So as I sit back and get ready for game two and just think about, oh, should I care or not? Of course I'm going to care. Cause I like y'all and we hang out together on this podcast. But other than that, man, nah, I'm not surprised by the outcome. The Cubs did what they were supposed to do against a soft schedule post all-star break. The Sox are part of that soft schedule. And I'm just happy that the Cubs actually came out and beat the White Sox. Usually the White Sox play this game with you where they mess around and tease you. And then they beat themselves. No, 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 no. Fresh out the box. The Cubs like, no, 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 no. We got this, fellas. We'll beat you. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the Sox was just sitting there with their chili willy. Just, mm-hmm, that's nice. <laughs> More butter. Mm-hmm. More syrup. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> More stolen bases. Mm-hmm. That's nice. <laughs> more, 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 more letter high fastballs at 93 miles an hour that big leaguers can turn around. Oh, yeah. Bring that on. The chili willy white Sox, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy. That's been the local angle. As you can see, everything is happy and good here in the city of Chicago in the summer of concerts and the the summer of movies. Everybody wants to go see Oppenheimer. Everybody wants to go see Barbie. We'll talk about uh, they clone Tyrone later on in the pod. I'm just sitting here with White Sox baseball. to the local angle right here on FanDuel TV. I'm John Zastrzemski, the host of New York, New York, where it's fair to say we are gearing up for what will be hands down and no questions asked the most highly anticipated New York football season that we have had collectively in a decade. And I understand the bar right now is set super low from a New York football perspective, changed a little bit with the New York Giants going to the playoffs last year, winning a playoff game against the Minnesota Vikings. But for the other team in town that is getting ready for their appearance on Hard Knocks, that is all in with Aaron Rodgers as their quarterback. This has got to be, without question, the most jazzed up the Jet fan base has been in over a decade. Ironically enough, since the last time they were on Hard Knocks and You know what happens when you're on Hard Knocks? You're in the crosshairs. You're under that microscope. The Jets found themselves Thursday a little bit of controversy because of their former offensive coordinator or their current, edit that out, their current offensive coordinator, who was the former head coach of the Denver Broncos, that basically got roasted to the high heavens where Sean Payton goes scorched earth in discussing and dissecting the job performance that he gave you a year ago as head coach of the Denver Broncos. Look, we could all agree that Daniel Hackett was inept as an NFL head coach. That's obvious. 
but it's very rare that you see a coach in the coaching fraternity go and roast a fellow coach the way Sean Payton did, where he was basically taking no prisoners and taking shots at everybody in Denver for what went on with their operation. If I'm a Jeff fan, I'm not concerned about it. Nathaniel Hackett's back calling plays. He is no longer an NFL head coach. He's an offensive coordinator. He's got the rapport. He's got the comfort level with Aaron Rodgers. You can roast him as a head coach all you want. I need him to be a quality, competent offensive coordinator, which he has shown he can be with this particular quarterback. But where the Bronco Jet hostility takes it almost to another level is Sean Payton taking a shot at the quote-unquote super teams, which we have seen fail in the NFL. The Philadelphia Eagles being the perfect example of that. But my Canada coach, Peyton, who's looking at the Jets as a super team? They made one significant move this offseason. That's going and getting Aaron Rodgers. And I get it. Aaron Rodgers, star quarterback, future Hall of Famer, MVP a couple of years ago. Like, we know what kind of brand Rodgers brings to the New York Jets. That's obvious. That goes without saying. But it's not like you had the Jets spending like drunken sailors this offseason. Let's be honest. They basically just brought in all Aaron Rodgers' buddies. That's how they drew up this offseason, which is fine. Is it possible, though, that they go and get themselves, not a uh, buddy of Aaron Rodgers, but a former foe of Aaron Rodgers? It sure seems like the Dalvin Cook to the New York Jets rumors are picking up a whole lot of steam. and. I thought all along Dalvin Cook was going to find himself down in South Florida. Remember, he played his college football at Florida State. He's a Miami boy through and through. His buddy Jalen Ramsey just ended up with the Miami Dolphins, and there's no state income tax in Florida. So you signing a free agent deal. There are a lot of appealing reasons for why you would want to be in South Beach, aside from the weather, when it comes to maybe making your next pit stop in the NFL. But here we are. Dalvin Cook has not signed with the Miami Dolphins. He is meeting with the New York Jets. And the Jets have a little extra cap room. They restructure the contract of Aaron Rodgers. And if I'm the Jets, you do not let Dalvin Cook leave the building. Yes, you have Brees Hall. We all love Brees Hall's game. Brees Lightning, Speedy. Guy was breaking off 70 and 80-yard runs last year. But we are also talking about a running back who blew out his ACL. And there's always that question of how are you going to respond after the injury? Are you going to be better than ever immediately in year one? Saquon Barkley took him a year to kind of find his footing, to get him back into that comfort zone and whatnot. So having somebody like Dalvin Cook to pair with Brees Hall makes perfect sense in Jetland. And you don't want to be in a position where you wind and dine and you flirt with Dalvin Cook, and then all of a sudden he's leaving the building, and then the Miami Dolphins come calling, or somebody else comes to calling, and you don't end up getting your guy. You got the cap room now to do it. Don't let Dalvin Cook leave the building if you're the New York Jets. Rolling on this year. You want to go and stick it to Sean Payton and the Broncos? You want to be able to show up in these marquee games right out of the gate? Go and add Dalvin Cook to that running back room. Put him with Aaron Rodgers. Put him with Garrett Wilson. Put him with Brees Hall. And those plus 250 odds for the Jets to win a division, wonder if they go down a little bit. 
And the AFC East, you want to talk about one of the more fascinating divisions to break down. It's the best division in the NFL. You can make a compelling case, and the odds on FanDuel indicate as such that the Bills, the Jets, and the Miami Dolphins all could find themselves right there as far as winning this division. You can make a case for any of those three teams to go and get it done. And when the fourth team, from an odds perspective, is the New England Patriots, we're still talking about Bill Belichick. They may be the least talented team in the division, but we are still talking about Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. So you got to pay homage and pay respect to the best coach to ever do it. So, Jetland, you got your coach sticking up your offensive coordinator. You got the Dalvin Cook pursuit. And there is a lot chewing as we get closer and closer to this regular season. I, I told Giant fans there was no reason to worry and there was no reason to sound the alarm on Saquon Barkley. And look, I could go into a diatribe about everything that is wrong with the financial system that's in place. The way running backs are not treated fairly from a standpoint of their best years being under that rookie contract. And it's tough to justify, if you're a front office, the idea of a significant long-term guarantee as far as money and years for a back with the way these guys just break down. That's almost a conversation for a different day. But Giant fans were worried about a holdout a week ago with Barkley. Monday, they give him a couple extra bucks guaranteed. He ends up signing the one-year deal. And Saquon Barkley, ready to go, started a 2023 season. Why? Saquon Barkley's a people pleaser. He's a team-first guy. He's a likable guy. And I don't think he wanted the label, fair or unfair, that he was being a diva or that he was being a guy that was kind of going to upend what the 2023 New York Giants are trying to do, which is get back to the postseason for the first time since 2007, 2008 in consecutive years. I don't think Saquon wanted that attached to him. Do I think he's ticked off? Yeah, I do. Do I think he's annoyed about the fact that he's not sitting here with a long-term contract for the Giants? I'd be upset too. But this is about the system. This is not about the player. And if you're a Giant fan, you should be thrilled with the way your front office just handled their offseason. Because what they did is they showed you, we understand and we get the economics and the dynamics of a front office in 2023 and how it needs to be run and how it needs to be operated. There are a lot of front offices around the National Football League in years past, and the Giants had one with Dave Gettleman just a few years ago that did not understand that sort of structure. you got to be forward-thinking now running a team. You pay quarterbacks, you pay corners, you pay offensive tackles. You don't give long-term contracts to running backs, even if they're as dynamic and even if they're as special as Saquon Barkley. You feel for Saquon? Well, it's the system. It's not the Giants. It's the position that he plays. And that's why he'll be on that one-year contract and he'll have to prove it once again, hey, that I'm one of the best in the business in 2023. Now, speaking about one of the best in the business, the last eight weeks, the New York Yankees, the baseball team in town that is the love of my life, they have been not exactly easy on the eyes. I think that's putting it mildly. 
with their inability to score runs, with their inability to win games consistently. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. Aaron Judge, not much time to go in rehab. Coming back after the injury at Dodger Stadium. Yankees get ready for a monstrous three-game series against the Baltimore Orioles. And the Yankees get set for a make-or-break part of their schedule that's going to define, I think, what they will look like the rest of the year in 2023 against the Orioles and the Tampa Bay Rays and then the reigning World Series champion, Houston Astros. And as they kind of figure out what their plan is going to be, the August 1st trade deadline, they need Aaron Judge more than ever. Is he ready to go? Is he ready to go and be one of the best players in baseball and just find that timing, find that rhythm, and all of a sudden pick up right where he left off? That's a million-dollar question for the Yankees. But I think their way of looking at things is look at our offense and look at our team without this guy. We'll take our chances of him finding his timing in the big leagues, in the biggest games of the year, as opposed to running out the likes of Jake Bowers and Billy McKinney and the quadruple-A players the Yankees have had in their lineup. Very rare that you see in Major League Baseball a player have the impact. One individual, like Aaron Judge. You know, that's usually reserved for the NBA with a Jokic or a Giannis or Curry. That's the presence of Aaron Judge. Look at the Yankee record and look at their performance offensively when he plays and when he doesn't play. But the Yankee hope of getting back into the playoffs. You hate to put it on one guy, but guess what? I'm putting it on one guy. Aaron Judge, you got to take him there. Will he be able to do so? Buckle up. That's a rather intriguing storyline in town. So things really heating up in a big way around the Big Apple. It's always hot and steamy in late July around the Big Apple. But two intriguing football teams, the return of one of the best players in all baseball, get your popcorn ready. New York, New York, on the ringer, on the local angle here on FanDuel TV. We'll come right back. <laughs> 